Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg. And this is Chris Jackson. And Fred, I think um, uh, we're trying to talk about how it's really useful to be helpful to people in more than just, uh, I suppose, the altruistic, charitable sense. Well, you know, helping one of your neighbors cross the road or get their groceries home or something like that's that's being helpful, you know, being respectful and all those other kinds of things. Um, we, you and I and a handful of others were in a, in a discussion the other day, and it was part of the discussion was, well, how do you influence people? How mm-hmm. do you, as a, as a reliability engineer, how do you get your team to understand that, okay, this is important, this is an issue, this failure is bad? Or, you know, we need to do this, this, and this, or we, you know, here's how to interpret these test results. This is informative or useful, whatever it is that takes the ability of influence that people pay attention, that they believe what you're saying. They trust what you're saying. They understand what you're saying. There's all kinds of elements to influence. One of the pieces is that, and I think it was brought up in the context of how do you build credibility? And and one part of that is, I mean, there's many, many different elements to it, but one of them is just be helpful. And I, and I learned that in the reliability sense when I was at Hewlett Packard, uh, Dick Moss um, had a uh, email list. And I, I think there were maybe uh, a thousand people across the corporation that were a part of that list. And it was mostly engineers and a few managers. And it was a place that you could ask a question. It was called the DFR list. You could ask a question and you were very, very likely to get more than one answer from other people across the company. And what, what ended up being my role at one point was to make sure they got an answer. You know, so if I didn't know the answer, I'd, I'd call you, Chris, and say, hey, could you answer this? And, and then follow up, make sure they got an answer. And the the list would get maybe 10 questions a week, sometimes more, sometimes less, but it was, it wasn't overwhelming. It just took a few minutes a day to manage that and to respond to people and, and follow up with them and so on. What it turned out to be though, is it was a trusted resource to get a second opinion or to find a resource or to get a lead or the check your work or do whatever. It was all kinds of interesting things that came up. And at one point my boss said, why are you doing this? You're spending an, you know, an hour a week, you know, just answering questions. Why don't you, and, and I don't, and so I had, to, I had to sit back and talk to Dick Moss again. So why are we doing this? You know, I intuitively had an idea why I'm doing it. I enjoyed doing it. Um, he said, if you're helpful, people will come back, right? And it builds credibility. It's part of that. And it also allows you to, to let other people know how you, ha- how you solve problems, how you think through issues, how, and they feel comfortable coming to you because you actually try to help them. And, and one of the things he said was that, you know, for every hundred questions you answer, 10 will come back with more serious questions and that will make a difference in the design of their product or in the operation of their company, of their division. 
And then one of them will come back and, and have a major one and it'll be a really valuable ink exchange and make a big difference. Oh, I never thought of that. And he was right. We start, we kept track of, you know, how important or how much impact the different types of things we dealt with were. Um, well, we, in that conversation you're referencing uh, for our listeners' um, benefit was conversation we're having about culture. How do we change culture or how do we change organizations mm -hmm. or influence organizations in a positive way? And I think what a lot of people forget, you can, um, we, we talk about change management, then there are university courses which teach people the theory of change management and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know, there's different checklists of what makes a good leader and everything else. But the reality is um, every organization from the start of, start of time was full of people. They're going to do things which benefits them in a very selfish way, which sounds very, you know, um, primitive and evolutionary, but it's the truth. And then your question is, well, how do we get anybody to do anything that benefits the company? Well, at what leadership does and what, you know, what good culture involves or includes is essentially your success is our success and, and employees and, and members believe it. Mm -hmm. And so reliability only becomes a thing that works well in organizations where people genuinely think reliability engineering makes their lot in life easier. And so those, I suppose, really mature organizations where uh, they know that if you do reliability and quality stuff early on, not only will you have a more reliable, higher quality product at the end, but you'll also uh, solve the problems which would otherwise cause crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis during production, which would blow out schedules and blow out budgets. Mm -hmm. They just inherently know that. So they, it's like they're invested in things like Vermeers and fault tree analyses and just you know taking a deep breath to pause and think about what could go wrong before they start uh, – rushing to design the wrong thing fast. And so it it works in those organizations because people genuinely believe that being proficient at reliable, the right reliability engineering tools, I should say, not the wrong ones, but the right ones, uh, will actually help them in a very selfish, personal, professional way. Um, and so I think what you're talking about, Fred, and of course I wasn't there in, in, in your organization, but it sounds like what you were successfully doing was essentially helping people understand that reliability engineering and your team, which is, I suppose, synonymous with reliability effort, is fundamentally helpful. And that's when cultures start to change or when that's when reliability happens and all that good stuff. Uh, so if you're not there to help, then you have already lost, you've already lost the, uh, the reliability engineering race. And, you know, we, we often get taught, asked to, you know, single one hour webinars or awareness things. And, and yes, you know, we do, I do them sometimes as well. But um, you just know that if the people you're talking to don't genuinely believe it's going to help their lot in life, and it, it doesn't matter. Um, and beyond that, even if they do think something you say could help their lot in life, if their immediate superiors will ensure that doesn't happen, then you've already lost. So for example, let's just say that you are talking to an organization about HALT and what highly accelerated life testing can do or derate. Now, derating is an even better one, but mm -hmm. even better example where you, uh, the electronic components of, often as a line item and a bill of materials take up a minuscule amount of the recommended retail price 
uh, of a product. But and derating often essentially means that uh, you instead of using a capacitor rated to five volts, you're going to use a capacitor rated to ten volts. So it's a more robust electronic component, so it's going to last longer. But and it's slightly expensive, like slightly, slightly more expensive. expensive. So, in, so that might take the percentage of um, recommended retail price that is dedicated to electronic componentry from 0.3 of a percent to 0.45 of a percent, for example. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What, insert the right number there. The main point I'm trying to say is it's going to have a minuscule amount overall, but if you zoom in, it's going. that's a huge increase in the electronic componentry bu uh, budget in terms of a relative change. Yep. Now, if you have a boss who cannot tolerate that level of change in terms of how much money you spend on electro electronic componentry or their personal bonuses are tied to slashing costs, associated yep. with uh, electronic componentry, then even if the employees know that, hey, derating could solve tons of problems, it's never going to happen um, because that's not going because the, the structure, the culture, the bureaucracy, the leadership essentially is trying to optimize something besides optimal reliability performance. Yeah. In, insert gnashing of teeth here. Well, at some point, there, I mean, there's a difference in my mind of the one-to-one -one interactions I got with those email questions and the questions we get at Ascendo is, is also an example of just being helpful. And mm -hmm. I mean, I probably have gotten two or three questions this week on, well, how do I approach this? Does this make sense as a good accelerated test approach or things like that? And I'll spend 10, 15 minutes. Sometimes I'm get on the phone with somebody and talk through it and, and, I have no context to their bureaucracy and all the other issues and so on. But if they're able to make a better argument or get better results or, or, or be confident in what they're doing and like our last episode talking about formula and being able to tell the story of what this, these results are meaning to me, that's all good. They become better at what they do. They'll come back and ask better questions, stuff like that. And eventually part of my, my, What's in it for me is that then I get better clients. I get people that are more educated. They understand what they're doing. They're trying to, to really improve what they're doing and in their organization. But the, the, that's one kind of being helpful, just being genuinely interested in helping somebody else understand something, solve a problem, move forward, whatever. And I tend to not spend more than an hour on any of those kind of things. The ones that have, catch my interest i'd certainly spend more time on but most of them it's like oh you take a look at this reference this is a really good book see chapter eight you know it's really good it has all the details you need on it or if here's a paper that you know chris wrote or here's a webinar on something you know go check this out a lot of times it's pretty simple from my point of view but it's helpful for the other person to move forward now in an organization in sometimes you got to be helpful in a completely different way and it might not be the right term and that's where I've often, and I've said it more than once, the person I'm confronting is that one that was the penny pincher that didn't want to increase the bill of material cost because of derating. I said, do you want me to tell your boss or should you that by reducing, you know, not spending an extra nickel, you're going to cost $50 an extra warranty per unit we ship? Here's the math. And usually I get this stammering deer in the headlight kind of look. You know, like, hey, I know your boss. I go talk to him. And they care about 
the warranty cost also and customer satisfaction. That might not be on your plate yet. Somebody's plate it is, and they have more rank than you and they can tell you what to do. So do you want to do the right thing or do you want to do what you, or you believe is the right thing to do? And I've not lost any of those arguments. Not made for, I've not made friends. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, but so, I mean, it is easy to to, to chastise the, the supply chain guys who you know who focus exclusively on cutting costs, cutting costs, and then say, yeah, well, it's the same form, same fit, same specs, so it's the same product or same component or same part. Yeah, nine times out of ten, it's a disaster, and then it's like, right. Well, they're not. If one costs something different, then it's not the same. You, why do you think that one costs more than that one? Yeah. Um, well, you, part of it is I, I learned also is it's not that person's fault. They're, the way you painted out the picture is that, you know, the, the procurement manager's got a motivation to, that is only focused on cost cutting and that's what they're going to do. And that's the structure that team is in. And that's mm -hmm. probably a, a ripple from somewhere else in the organization. Well, if the organization has no idea about warranty costs, like, is this something they don't track or don't keep on top of? Then, of course, in those meetings that leadership gurus have in the organization, then it's not going to pop it's up. It's not going to matter. Is, well, you, I mean, I, I talk to design engineers in some companies and design direct, the engineering directors, and they go, Well, warranty is not in my budget. Op, operations folks pay for that, the manufacturing yep. teams pay for that. And so if they save money, it benefits them. And I said, you know, they have me. very little control over whether your product's reliable or not. Mm -hmm. And and you're spending all this time with your engineers fixing designs. And, and over hundreds of interviews, I've run into that it's about 25% of engineering teams' time is spent dealing with previously released products. Yep. They're fixing things. They should have got right at the start. And I, so the motivation for that engineering director was not warranty it wasn't his budget he got no benefit from it it didn't matter to him one way or the other it was off the radar so but that, that could be the organization's was, fault though it's the organizational fault i had to go talk to somebody else change at a different level but i still was sitting in front of him and says well what, how much time does your team spend fixing problems and it was like 25 percent of my engineering time and he says well what if you cut the failure, field failure rate in half, you would get, you know, as a rough estimate, 12 and a half percent of your team back. And that's like four hires for you. What could you do with that? And he's like, yeah. oh, oh, I get it. Okay. <laughs> so then he was on board. Sometimes being right. helpful is helping them see the connections. And sometimes being helpful that's true. is just that's answering true. the question. But I've also come across people who say, Hey, look, I see what you're saying. And I'm thinking militaries here, big one. <laughs> so I see what you're saying. I can see that, you know, if we spend an extra five cents now, we'll save $10 later on or insert the right, you know, numbers for said business case. Yeah. They say, but we either, we don't have that money, nor can we, it more we can't if spend I had that it, money. We can't uh, spend that money in the future, even. Yeah. And I, I would get personally crucified on my performance appraisal. If I had an increase in electronic component costs or whatever the equivalent issue is, like mm -hmm. they are smart enough to, to, you know, buy into what you're saying. They say, well, the organization penalizes me. Well, the, my leadership cadre penalizes me for doing the right thing, which I'm on board with. 
And so if I want to personally get a good appraisal or get that bonus or get promoted to whatever job I'm aspiring to, I have to cut costs now, even though I know someone's going to pay for it later on. And to an extent, you go, all right, fair play. Um, yeah, I'm a little more stubborn than that. It's like, and I go back to the phrase, be helpful. It might not be helpful for that person. It might be helpful for that warfighter that's actually got to use this device and needs it to actually work. I'm with you on that one. Right. And so I, I tend to, and that's a big part of why I started focusing on warranty early on. It was a surrogate for customer satisfaction. And it was real numbers. It was on you know, the expense sheet. It, if we spent $200 million, that was money spent. It was gone. And so sometimes being helpful is, is helping the organization connect the dots and see where the forces are creating behaviors that are inconsistent with satisfying the customer and, and in, in delighting the customers, I think was the phrase we use. The, as a complete aside, yesterday I called a support line. I got a, a new cheese making thingy, uh, um, mold. And I had a question about it. And so I wrote an email to the support line and I got an answer in five minutes and I wrote back, thanks. That was very, very helpful. And they wrote back, I'm glad to help if you have any other questions. And it was like, they were sitting on the keyboard waiting for my question to show up. Now, I don't know if I just happened to catch them when they're at their computer or if it was a slow day or what, but what a remarkable customer service. As contrary, my wife is on the phone for an hour and a half waiting for on hold, hearing the phrase every 30 seconds, your call is important to us. Please, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it was a stark difference of the difference of how being helpful is interpreted in different organizations. That might be a whole other topic for us as customer service. Well, you know, the cheese industry might uh, take their fromage very, very seriously, but, um, well, they were Canadian too, so they had the leg up on me on there. Well, the, the, the antithesis of that is like when I have problem with, for example, my online accounting software or, or, or you know, even, you know, I use Upwork, for example, or mm-hmm. I use lots of online, you know, um, uh, agencies like that. Yeah. If I want to actually ask a question, I have to navigate 16 pages, Yeah. Uh, Type keywords for your problem. Do these articles help? Yes, yes. No, they don't. I'll try this one. And, you know, you go through this. And eventually, after you go through these, you know, the gauntlet labyrinth of of um of uh of less than helpful help, but automated solutions. Then you might get to the link where you're able to raise a ticket or ask a question, and it's just becoming increasingly prevalent these days. And I think. I think if organisations can, um, can 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 realise that perhaps they've gone too far, they will those dudes will almost certainly start becoming, or do do dudes or do that will start sort of reclaiming market share that's been lost because people are fed up with the antithesis of your cheese making experience. Um, well, it was you know, and I've run into it on occasion uh, over time, and there's been examples of that. And I really do think that would be a whole nother topic: is customer mm-hmm. service stuff. And it's and yet probably another level of being helpful. It's it's uh, a level of it. But the part of this idea is that, at least in my mind, there's two levels of it. Is one is, you know, 
actively listen to what the question is or the trouble somebody else is having and make a connection, actually listen well enough that you understand what they're asking and ask some clarifying questions if you need to, and then either answer the question or help them find somebody that can answer that question or the resource that can help them find it. It just, it doesn't take a lot of time and it makes a connection that builds your network. If nothing else, it builds connections for you. It builds your, your bankroll of uh, favors you have, you know, given to other people. All of that should be done without, you know, tit for tat and saying, Hey, Bill, you know, I just did answer that question for you yesterday. Can you go, you know, run to the store and get me my groceries this week? No, it doesn't work that way. And I find that benefits come back in all kinds of different ways, but mostly it's that you, I generate genuinely enjoy helping somebody move forward in their career, move forward and understanding something, helping their analysis or whatever. That's fun to me. And it's a big part of why we ask for questions every time in the, on the podcast. Um, the other level is that sometimes the organization organization needs that wet mackerel slap across the face to say, Hey, you look at it this way. You know, here's the connections. Let's, let's understand what you're doing and why it's could be done differently. And, uh, I usually use the phrase, do you want me to tell your boss or, or do you want to <laughs> kind of thing? And, and there's other ways to do it, but all of it goes to that. I believe genuinely being helpful build your credibility. It builds your, your value of what you offer other people. People will seek you out, which is a, a hallmark in my mind anyway, of being successful at what you do. And all of those kinds of things I think have, it's a day-to-day -day habit. Um, if you're not adding value, if you're not being helpful, if you're not contributing to a, the outcome of the goals, um, you're pretty much just in the way. So, <laughs> you know, um, so anyway, that, that's my thought on it anyway. Sounds like, uh, sounds, well, sorry, it doesn't sound like my domestic life, or I think I'm very helpful, my family members, because as far as they're concerned, I am the internet, the electricity supply. <laughs> I am the mover. I am the person who has to instantly know about bus outages. Or so I believe I'm incredibly helpful, but I don't know. The level of respect and it engenders, I don't think it applies to the same well, level as it did at Hewlett-Packard back in the day. Yeah, that's the you your yang. Well, you know, it's re reliability engineers are not like family members. They they actually have problems they got to go solve, and they do appreciate it when somebody saves them two hours. True. It's you know that kind True. of stuff, that kind of good stuff. So, um, but anyway, if, if you've got a question, hopefully we can be helpful if you ask questions. I think that's part of the deal here. So if you've got questions about this, that, or the other thing about building credibility or interpreting an arrival plot, let us know. And we, we're at ascendoreliability.com slash go slash SOR. And Chris and I and the other hosts are available through uh uh, LinkedIn and through our about pages. There's plenty of ways for you to get in touch with us. And we thoroughly enjoy, at least I do, I speak for myself. And I, I know, Chris, I've sent you plenty of questions and you give great answers and help people out. <laughs> and so it's, especially ones I have no idea what I'm talking about. So I hand it off to somebody like you that, that does. And, I, don't know. Uh, I think, I think, I think you've got a pretty good handle on most things, man. I think it's just, uh, 
<laughs> Maybe it's just capacity issues. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the, um, but anyway, we look forward to your questions and comments and stuff. And Chris, I look forward to our next chat. Maybe we'll get a, a handful of questions that we could uh, deal with as we get in deeper into the year. Absolutely. I think the final plug for me is that, yeah, at Ascendo, I think everyone's involved is genuinely trying to help people. And I think uh, if there's any benefits that's down to karma, karma's a real thing, at least in this industry. But yeah, I think we genuinely try to help people. It does feel good and also improves our understanding of problems when we keep being challenged in this useful way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well said. All right. Well, thanks, Chris. We'll talk to you again soon. Always a pleasure, Fred. All right. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation if you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show. Please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.